to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, December 14th. Tears Week continues here on the Mini Break podcast as we take stock of where things stand entering the 2023 ATP and WTA seasons. Of course, yesterday, David Kane joined me on this show to break down the players we view as Tier 1 talents on the WTA moving forward on today's show, we get into the tier one talent on the men's side. And if you are going to try and tackle such an exercise so monumental, you better have some help along the way. Thankfully, I do once again here on today's show. And listeners, I'm going to be honest, we've gotten extraordinarily lucky with the guests we've been able to bring on our mini break podcast of late, really bringing on the best of the best. Sadly, that is not the case on today's show as we are joined by Fine, a returning champion here at Cracked Rackets, host of Monday Match Analysis, host of Three A Tennis Show. You hear his voice so frequently, whether it be on T2 or Tennis Channel itself. And yeah, I guess his eyebrows are impressive. Nevertheless, joining us once again today, I apologize, listeners. It's our dear friend, Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot, even though that's not this podcast. Welcome back, my dear friend. How are you doing today? Hey, Grusky, what are the, you're not going to plug the guests that you've had recently. You're just going to say that they've been great. You're not going to give it a tease. I mean, do I need to? I feel like our listeners know whether it be you, David Kane, Jeff Chisiver. I mean, on the Cracked Interviews podcast, Pam Shriver made her first appearance. Always a pleasure to be joined by one of the goats here at Cracked Rackets, 2018 NCAA singles champion Petros Frisokos. We're rocking and rolling. There may be no tennis on the court. That has not slowed me down, my friend. Be honest. How do you feel about the offseason? I love it. You keep it rolling. You keep it rolling. It's very admirable. The train does not slow down for you (laughs) at all. Tell me how you feel about it. Okay. I appreciate you asking me. I like whenever you come on. And I was joking. I know listeners realize that by now. Sarcasm. It is always great to be joined by, I should have mentioned, our newest Cracked Rackets contributor. More information on that moving forward. Gil Gross as well. We've got some fun things planned coming up, folks, in 2023. So be on the lookout for that. The truth is, why I love the offseason, Gil, is I am unencumbered by tennis. So all the things I want to talk about, I don't have to also make time for. They're the things now we get to make time for. For instance, I don't have to say, hey, you want to talk through Wednesday's Basel round of 16 results on today's show, Gil? Like, we don't have to do that. We can look big picture. And why I enjoy the offseason is that given professional tennis is a sprint, right? It's 11 months, no stop. There's a different event on every week of the calendar. Yes, there's exhibitions, there's stuff you can monitor in December, but this is the one time we have to catch our breath, take stock of things. I love it. Your connotation of your question, that eating grin I see on your face right now, dare I say, seems to suggest you might not. No, no, I'm I'm fine with it. I mean, <laughs> I I just I approach it a little bit differently. Like I I do slow down. Uh, especially after the the Monday Match Analysis Awards, I'll be doing a mailbag today. But I I skipped a week, right? So sometimes that that kind of thing will happen. I mean, I just think, look, I wasn't watching the the exhibition in um, Riyadh. Wh- where was it again? Riyadh, right? Yeah, like I I take my one month where I'm not 
watching, you know, meaningful tennis that matters in the rankings and that I, I take that for what it is. And I actually give myself a break. And I, I know you might too, but you know, the podcasting continues again, I think it's great. And, and you're right. We do get to like, just kind of be creative and talk tennis unencumbered by a uh, Basel round of 16. You're at your spot on. Yeah, well, that's what I do best, Gil. One have, some scholars have argued I'm often spot on here on this show. I would also say, you know what the difference? Why you slow down and I don't? Three letters. A-D-D, my friend. That is why I don't slow down. We keep rolling here in the month of December. Um, certainly, you know, I do want to talk about Tier 1 talent, but I do say the mini break, biggest results, storylines, controversies. We got a start date. We got a trailer for the, what is it called? Breakpoint, I believe, is the official name. And by the way, that's a derivative of the mini break. So I hope I get residuals in the mail for however well this show ends up doing. I mean, I tweeted out the joke at the time. If half as many people end up watching the show as tweeted out the trailer today, they're going to be in good shape. But did you have any particularly dramatic reaction to the trailer coming out to the news we got of the episode sequence as well today? I'm just relieved that we got something because I was getting worried. I was getting nervous. <laughs> they looked at all the footage and they're like, guys, we, we got nothing. <laughs> there's just we there's no story here. No, it was just kind of I don't want to say scary, but it was a little bit curious that here we were. What's the day? It's December 14th today. So as of December 13th, this Netflix docuseries is supposed to come out in time for what they ended up saying, you know, the start of the season. So, uh, you know, next month we were what about 20 days off from when they said they were going to release this and we hadn't heard anything. We didn't have a name for the show. We didn't have an official date. Uh, now we, now we have all of that. We have a name, we have a date, we have a trailer and, uh, the trailer was, was great. It was, it was cool. What did you think of it? I enjoyed the footage. I I always enjoy a good bike scene or like in the workout room. That's I'm just a sucker for that sort of content. And I want as much of these players in the training room as possible because we both know how physical a sport tennis can be, how much maintenance goes into keeping up your body for the 11th month sprint we alluded to earlier. I feel like we're going to get a lot of that. The dirty secret, tennis players are fascinating individuals. They're not the most interesting people in the world though and so I actually think the more tennis centric things can be the more manufactured storylines as opposed to just hey here's a day with Taylor Fritz like I think the more storylines the better and I do think they're going to do some manufacturing certainly the sequence of who's starring in what episodes to have Kyrgios Kokonakis together in episode one I like that pairing early on I like the early, dare I say, rubric. I like the rubric that I see. Yeah, I mean, th there's been some leaking, or I don't know if it was leaking. It might have been just purely released. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it was just really. No one's <laughs> leaking this, Gil. Like, hey, man, I got some some break point clips. You want them? Um, yeah, man, leak them my way. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's going to be five episodes. We're going to get the first half of the season. We're going to have Kiros Kokonakis in Australia, uh, Fritz, Bedosa, Indian Wells. They both went on runs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the most notable thing in the trailer in terms of footage was probably Bedosa crying. Yeah. Is that the most eye-catching? I mean, you know, you're not going to get much in the trailer and, and you shouldn't. <laughs> okay. 
This is so stupid. You know what was the most enticing thing to me? And do we want to give out the bag, by the way, Gil, or uh, the thing I'm thinking of? Should we give a little tease for the listeners, or do we keep that to ourselves? Let's let's figure things out first. (laughs) Okay, okay. That in itself is the tease right there, folks. You know what I enjoyed most? was the little Fritz groan we heard. At some point of the trailer, you just hear Fritz groaning. And I actually think the best Fritz footage is going to be like the stupid like that, where we just see him, you know, again, the real emotions, the real pains, the real nags, the real like all the little things. Obviously, tears are the most pronounced maybe example of that, but that we got that sort of a visceral groan, that's not a for-camera groan. That's a, oh, you caught me in a real moment sort of groan. And I'm really reading into two seconds of audio footage, but it was encouraging audio footage. Yeah, it, it was. I, Do you I know the groan I'm talking about? I got to – no, I got to go back. Uh, <laughs> but – I, I we'll did tweet see it out with the pot. Sorry, go on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jesus. No, go on. Uh, go on. I saw for. I, I did see a little bit firsthand at the U.S. Open how these camera crews were operating. Right. Okay. So uh, Tiafa, when he beat Schwartzman in a three-setter at the U.S. Open, which was a brutal, mm-hmm. really long, difficult three-setter, where uh, Tiafa was starting to struggle physically towards the end of it, and. You know, players are on court. They do the the interview with TV. They sign the autographs courtside. They hit the autographed balls up into the stands, and then they disappear into the tunnel. And that's the first moment where it's, okay, cameras are off. There's nobody looking at me. There's no microphones in my face. There's no children nearby. And uh, But during the US Open, I was relegated to the <laughs> tunnel interview. They at, at first they were having me do the, do my interviews for US Open Radio on the court. They changed it to in the tunnel. So I was getting Tiafo walking with him into the hallway and he just lets out a yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, you have Netflix cameras, you know, everywhere. So this is my hope of getting into the series. I do the the interview with Francis and then as he walks towards Arthur Ashe Stadium into the locker room, the the camera crew is just going with him. So there's a very kind of fine line between I'm in public and I'm not in public. And it was very clear that those Netflix cameras, and in this case, me, uh, it kind of experienced the player kind of reacting off camera, theoretically. And in this, you know, for the doc, it's going to be on camera. I'll tell you this, me and the listeners are shocked that didn't make the trailer. Um, that sounds like a riveting scene of Gil Gross giving the interview post-U.S. Open radio. <laughs> um, that's what I would have sold the show with. Uh, but no, I mean, those sorts of insights, that's what we're looking forward to seeing. Obviously, we got to see the episodes before we can judge the product itself. But uh, certainly to your point, nice to see that the show is happening. Nice to see a trailer out into the broader ethos. And yeah, I'm sure we will talk about that show more as it actually unfolds. With all of that said, we're on a schedule here today, folks. Gil Gross is a busy man. You heard me in the opener listing all of his credentials. This is a man who, you know, he doesn't have any Syracuse football to monitor anymore. 
here in the offseason, but he's got things to do. So let's get to it. The reason I wanted to have you here today, no response to the Syracuse dig. I was expecting him to jump at me, folks. Um, Anyways, the reason I wanted to have you here today, obviously, is to talk about the tier one ATP talents I see on the end. You see on tour moving forward. And of course, tiers always gets tricky. So that said, much like I did at the start of the women's show yesterday, I want to define the tier clearly for you, Gil Gross, today. Let you pick at me if you have any quibbles with my definition. For the sake of this exercise, not tier one players, tier one talents, what does that mean? It means you would be willing to bet that by January 1st, 2030, this player will have climbed the mountain and have captured a Grand Slam singles title. Now, for the sake of this exercise, let's be clear. A player can have already won a Grand Slam title coming into today's show. So, for instance, I'm sure we will probably drop the name Novak Djokovic. He can qualify as a Tier 1 talent today. Similarly, if you think Holger Runa belongs in this conversation, he's another player who can qualify for this talk today for Tier number 1. Players you would be willing to bet on capturing a Grand Slam title by January 1st, 2030. With that in mind, Gil, does that definition make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it differs from a 2023 Tier 1 talent. For instance, not all of these players on these lists are we guaranteeing are going to win Grand Slams in the, in the next calendar year. That is not the predictions we are making. We are looking big picture here. Who do we think the guys in the top of that conversation will be moving forward? That said, since I named him already, Gil, I still have Novak Djokovic at the top of my Tier 1 list of talents. I assume you do as well. Yeah, finished 2022 looking like the best player in the world. Uh, 87% win percentage for the season. Won four out of the last five events he played. Made the final in the in the fifth, which was the Paris Masters. A final he was up a set in a break. Really should have won that match as well. Uh, so completely accomplished his goal in the latter half of the season, which is just say like, hey, I'm still here. I'm still the man. Proved to, I thought he proved probably to himself that that he's the best in the world. That's from his perspective. And he'll go into the Australian Open, the favorite. We know about his surface versatility. Nobody has really been able to hold a candle to him on grass in quite some time, if you look at that. So Djokovic is a slam dunk. I mean, the the premise of this question, right, is even odds, who do you take to win a major by 2030? What would be the odds for Novak to, at any point, win a 22nd major? It would... I want to say 1000 at least, right? Like you have to lay down at least $10 to earn one in return. A little bit lower. No, he's got really, even with every, knowing that he's going to be able to play Australia, knowing that he's going to still be able to play all of the Wimbledons as well. Yeah. It's still winning a major. I don't, I mean, minus 1000 is just, that's yeah. I would, I would put it at like minus I mean, look, we're we're not that far off. I'd put it at minus seven fifty ish. Okay, here's the thing. I'd hit minus seven fifty. I'd be like, done. I'm I've spent like I'm we're gonna win that bet. Like lock that in. Versus a thousand, that's the where maybe again, this is semantics. That's the breaking point for me where I'd be like, Okay, that's a little too much, but like way better than minus he's minus seven fifty when he plays like 
I don't know, Vashik Pospisil in a first-round match. He's minus 1,500 maybe even in those. In- I just – I feel like they're both – I don't know. I feel like it's extraordinarily likely. Here's the thing. Just some quick numbers for you. So let me ask you this, Gilgross. Win percentage this season. I'm not going to ask you to guess it, but do you think it was higher or lower than his career average? Higher. He won 43 and 7. He won 86% of his matches, 2.5% better than his career average. First serve win percentage. Highest number of his career. He won 77.2% of his first serves, made him at a 64.9% clip, which is an above average number amongst top 50 players. His first serve was more effective this season, and it's clouded by that long streak of indoor hardcore tennis he played at the end of the year, no doubt. But his first serve was more effective this season than any other uh, season prior in his career. His 87.4% break uh, hold percentage, 1.5% above his career average. Now, the break percentage did dip to 26.8%. And that's 5.2% below his career average of 32%, which is nuts. He breaks serve for his career one out of every three service games. I brought that number up to Bradley Klon, who who actually like started to cry when he heard it. He was like, dude, are you serious? Like one out of every three. When you say it like that, as a like you just feel so upset knowing like, all right, I held twice, but I'm about to get broken. Um you know, even that dip was still an elite top 10 number for him. And you feel like that's going to bounce back if he plays a larger sample size of outdoor hard court matches, clay court matches. I understand eye test wise, he doesn't look like 2011, 2015 version of himself. But even if he drops off by a percent next year, this player, Gil, is still unequivocally in the championship conversation. And it's like, I feel like there's still 3% for him to dip, which we could see happen three to five years from now, but definitely not in the next 12 months. There definitely is. And he doesn't need to look like 2011 Novak because he's adapted his game just like Rafa did really, really admirably. And by the way, if we're talking about uh, implied probability, which for people who are not as uh, betting savvy, yeah, we'll we'll kind of understand better. We're actually really close. Minus 1,000 is 91% uh, and minus 750 is um, 88%. So we're pretty close. We're saying, what, are you now going to say that you're too low? So here's what I'm saying. That's actually brilliant. And shout out to us for the unintentional math. I am over 90% sure that he's going to win another slam in his lifetime. And that's why I think minus 1,000 is more likely. Yeah, I'm not going to, again, we're splitting hairs between a couple (laughs) of percentages. I'm just saying you're, you're 35 there can be an injury. Yeah, uh, stuff can happen. It, it's just hard to win majors. I just, I just have a lot of respect for how hard this is. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's again, he's the Australian Open favorite. He'll be about what probably, and the odds are out now, so we could look to to win the Australian Open. He's probably close to minus money. So I'm going to look that up while we go, but I'm curious for you to guess. where do you, Who is a bigger favorite in your mind right now? And then I'll look up the odds to tell you what it actually is. But in your mind, who's the bigger favorite? Rafa to win the French Open in 2023 or Novak to win Wimbledon? It's felt like Novak to win Wimbledon. For a little while now, it's felt like that for me. 
Uh, I agree last... with you, and that's why I yeah. think he has to be the first name on this list. Is I just think he's going to win the next two Wimbledon's pretty comfortably before any of these young guys get comfortable, especially if Russians and Belarusians aren't going to be allowed to play. Yeah, it really feels that way. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to come up with that second contender that's going to challenge Novak. Now, I was adamant coming into Wimbledon this year that it was going to be Rafa Nadal. I wish we got to see it. Yeah, you weren't exactly wrong, but you weren't exactly right either. For what it's worth, I don't see via DraftKings any Wimbledon French Open odds, but Novak plus 115 to win Australia right now. Alcaraz plus 550 is the next closest. Medvedev 7-1. to one. Nadal 12-1. to one. Yeah, so again, we both have Djokovic, Tier 1 talent. If you look at the stats, you look at the eye test, the results, the titles he racked up to end the year, the top 10 wins he ends up, you know, he ends up with more top 10 wins than any other ATP player this season. And he did it in maybe 40% of the amount of tournaments played. So we know how good Novak can be at his best. We're all looking forward to seeing it in Australia. Let's move on now to the other half of this equation. Is Rafael Nadal still a tier one talent in your mind, Gil? Do you feel certain that he will win another slam in his career? Yeah. I'm not concerned enough about what we saw in the second half to go into 2023 and be pessimistic about Nadal. And even above that, the fact that his foot is not what we're talking about anymore to me is a huge positive because there was a point last year coming out of Rome to be specific and even coming out of Roland Garros, which he won, but he won having to numb his foot where it was completely in the conversation, in the realm of possibility that that foot thing was going to be the end of Nadal's career once and for all. Now that that's faded into the past and you're telling me that, you know, he, he had an ab injury, and then he came back and lost uh, a bunch of matches on indoor hardcourt. Again, predictable, predictable stuff that he was going to struggle. And it's so hard to keep that perspective because Nadal plays Tommy Paul in Paris. You expect him to win. Nadal goes to the ATP finals, and I suppose you expect him to, to win some matches, more than one match. Uh, I get that because it's Nadal. But you look at the situation he was in. Not enough tennis worst conditions possible, really, really good opponents. Of course, he's going to struggle. You're telling me that after what we saw from the beginning of the year to when he sustained the ab injury at Wimbledon, after that, that I'm going to go into next season and be pessimistic? Not a chance. I understand that there's health concerns, injury issues, didn't look good at the end of the year. I don't care. He's absolutely unequivocally still in my tier one talent. And I do think that he wins major number 23 at some point. You made a very strong case. Now, if you look at him from a numbers perspective, obviously 30 and three through that French open run was holding serve 83.9% of the time, breaking serve a ridiculous 33.3% of the time, literally one out of every three that would have ranked number one on the ATP tour for the season, you know, nine and five from Wimbledon onward. The numbers still looked pretty good. Like he was still holding serve 82.1% of the time, which is about the average of a top 50 player. Now, for what it's worth, the average of a top 50 player is 82.5%. So it was slightly below, but still in range. Break percentage, 26%. Not his best, but still elite. 
the thing is, it's been two straight years now, right? Where after the French Open, things have really slowed down for Rafa. And here's the thing. In those first six-month stretches of the year, he's been really freaking good. I mean, you look to him last year. Did he win a major in 2021? No, he did not. But obviously, he wins Rome. He wins Barcelona, plays an exceptional match where Djokovic plays his best tennis in those Roland Garros semifinals. Really fun five-setter against Tsitsipas in Australia. Rafa was pretty good through the first half of the year, and then we just didn't see him. But again, through the first half of this year— He was the unequivocal best of the best. And to not have someone in tier one who put together six months of being the best tennis player in the world 12 months ago, like that's just grossly irresponsible to write him off this soon. Now, if you were asking me to rank within the tier, my confidence level for Rafa, I won't lie. It's dipped a little bit lower than some of the other names we we will get to later on. But he's still the favorite going into the Roland Garros. He's still, for me, he's got to lose it two years in a row consecutively to not be the favorite going into Roland Garros. And to your point, he was healthy enough to play the tour finals, which is all you really wanted to see. Any final thoughts on Rafa? All about health. Yeah, that makes sense. By the way, does three a tennis show now pivot to two and you just cut Joel or Amy? (laughs) No, there won't be any cutting of the of the hosts uh but we we have something in mind we have okay that's what i like to hear because obviously again you can hear all about Djokovic, rafa federer extensively three a tennis show gil gross amy lundy joel drucker one of my favorite shows to listen to out there in the tennis ethos all right those are the clear-cut tier one talents and by the way just because i haven't mentioned this yet on a podcast shout out to jeff sackman rafa eighth in his top tennis 128 greatest players of the last century, Federer fifth, Serena sixth. No Novak Djokovic yet, who will almost certainly be in the top four. You feel like Navratilova is going to be in the top four. Who else is going to be up there? I know we are both fascinated to find out. And don't let those superficial numbers scare you, folks. Go actually read the articles. It's a very, very fun series. But let's look beyond the two known names now. From here, Gil Gross, I have six names I have listed as Tier 1 talents. I imagine there's going to be some overlap between us, so I let you steer first. Who is the next name you want to talk about? Carlos Alcaraz, I'd say. By the way, I think Sampras at 21 is maybe the most surprised I've been in Jeff's list. (sighs) So... Uh, I mean, how do we want to get you don't, into this? You don't room? want to get into Agassi's no, it's totally, 38. It's totally fair. Agassi's 38. Like, Agassi below Becker is crazy to me. And, like, I, Jeff's coming on the show later this month to talk about yeah. all of these things. I'm going to need a list from you. I'm going to need some help sourcing. Like, what are the biggest arguments we're having? Okay. Uh, yeah, so Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, Not won listed, his first by major. the way, in the 128 yet, despite how we might have it. But go on. <laughs> Uh, already has a major 19 years old world number one 19 years old I test can't miss special different the athleticism the completeness the firepower uh, that he brings off the ground has it all has it all and and the attitude the attitude is excellent as well so you know it's the closest thing we've seen to just a perfect player uh, since the big three. 
It's the second best teenage season of my lifetime. Number one belongs to Rafa, who's 2005, I want to say, was his teenage year. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was just second to none. It's better than Djokovic's year 19. I did this on a podcast segment last week, so I'm not going to go through that again. Go check out the Peaks podcast. I believe I did with David Kane, but the math says... In the modern era, 21st century tennis, this is the second best teenager we have ever seen on the ATP Tour, 57-13 and 13 overall this year. And it's not like it was a cupcake schedule, right? Alcaraz, 18-9 and nine versus top 20 opponents, 9-5 and five versus the top 10. One of five guys to finish top 20 in both hold and break percentage. And yeah, the, the second serve was still a, a bit of an issue for him. It's, you know, outside the top 20 for him overall, according amongst top 50 players on the stats leaderboard. But you just like... When I, if I were to ask you, what is your biggest concern about Carlos Alcaraz moving into the future? If your biggest concern about a 19-year-old is his second serve, like everyone at 19 has concerns about the second serve. It's the most controllable thing. And like outside of him running so fast that he pulls a Kevin Ware and his kneecap comes out of his body because it's just like, hey, humans don't do that. Like outside of some sort of debilitating injury and not to get too cross sporty here because I know some listeners won't understand this reference, but like he is a Derrick Rose, John Morant, Russell Westbrook type athlete. We're just like the freaks of the freaks in terms of explosion, power, all the things you want. Those guys can get injured. Like there is every time Carlos Alcaraz goes for some ridiculous slide, I'm like, dude, your hip is going to pop out of its socket. Like you didn't need it on that one. And that risk is part of what makes him such a pleasure to watch match in, match out. I actually think that's my biggest concern is that like he's too athletic for his own good, which is just a crazy thing to say out loud. He's got some youthful recklessness. Yes, exactly. I think Jaws probably a great cross sport comparison for him. Yeah, I, I agree. It's yeah. like if Jaw though, if Jaw Jaw was a deadly outside shooter, but he kind of has gotten way better at it. Like that's the thing is Jaw is like quietly shooting. Do we want to get into this? He's like shooting thirty eight percent this year from three, <laughs> which like with everything else he can do, that's good enough. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know what my my first of all, I think the second serve is better than the first serve. The kick serve, I don't hate yeah. at all. I think it's probably his best serve. Sometimes he uses it as a first serve. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think the first serve is the one thing that he needs to get better. But it, it's like the technique is good. He's shown flashes, especially at the U.S. Open, like in the final against Rude when he really needed it because those legs were going on him. All indications point to that serve developing quite nicely. So, yeah, there are very little concerns. So I feel like we just default to injury when we have nothing to say. Yeah. When we're like, I can't, I can't find any holes here. So it's just about whether or not the guy gets injured. So I know that there's some, some recklessness, but at, at the end of the day, it's fine. Like, I don't think he's going to – what are the odds that he's going to hurt himself because he's running after a ball that maybe he can – you know, doesn't have much of a chance at, at getting to. Well, I'll tell you this. If it's at your your projected best surface for him, a grass court, you could see his knee like buckling under him when he tries to do some ridiculous sliding thing on the grass that's just like, hey, humans can't do that. Um, 
No, you're absolutely right. Again, there is no legitimate criticism of his tennis game, and so you have to speculate about the abstract that could happen to any player throughout the course of their career. But yeah, again, I feel pretty confident in our first three names. Uh, Who's next up on your... Oh, and by the way, because I like to do this for the young players, January 1st, 2030, Carlos Alcaraz, 26 years old. So like, he actually may be a tier one talent. Not maybe. He will be a tier one talent in the 2030s as well, which is crazy to say out loud. But yeah, it's going to be a very fun rest of the decade with Carlos Alcaraz. All right, who's next up confidence-wise? If you were to say, I'm fourth most confident in this person, who would it be, Gil? Interesting. Hmm. I am. This uh, is where things get like Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz are the cupcakes. Those are the – you should be warmed up now for this podcast. I need you to get spicy from here. Because they're ready right now. Yeah, Exactly. All right. Yeah, exactly. You're like, this could be fulfilled by the end of 2023 for the first three names. My next guy's Sinner. So he's next on my list, too. I'll allow you to make the case. He's 21, so I just feel like I have a lot of cushion there. There are a couple of other guys who I'm I'm not sure how much better they're going to get. I'm not sure how many next steps they're going to be able to take. But Sinner, he's a factor on all three surfaces. He continues to get bigger and stronger. You know, that needs to keep happening. Uh, He's just got this kind of can't-miss quality off the ground that is just the basis for success in in modern tennis. The serve's getting better and better. It's got to keep improving. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, But mentally, I loved what I saw. That was the biggest revelation for me of 2022, was that mentally... He showed me clutch gene. He showed me gamer. Uh, he showed me that he knows how to manage his emotions throughout a match, that he knows how to get a crowd on his side. So I, I thought this was the nexus of the the raw talent that we've seen from Sinner from a ball striking perspective kind of was joined by mentally what I saw, it, you know, the mentality of a champion. Yannick Sinner's played 188 career ATP tour matches, according to Tennis Abstract. What's his win percentage, Gil? Is he at... He's 21 years old. 73? Okay, that's That a would little, be excellent. That 68.1%. Now, to that 73 number, he won 73.4% of his matches this season. But through age 21, he is winning two-thirds of his matches for his career. We have the newly introduced two-thirds rule here at Crack Rackets. Why is that the rule? Because if you're winning two-thirds of your matches, you're typically making the quarterfinals of every event that you play. You win more than one match at each event that you play. That's been Yannick Sinner throughout the course of his career. And a fun stat from him this season, he's one of just two guys to make the second week at every slam. It was him and Rafa, the only two guys to do that. Now, of course, when you look at the cal- or the results this year, 2-8 and eight in the quarterfinal matches that he played. You look for him against top 10 opponents. Yannick Sinner, 3-9 and nine overall against the top 10, 4-10 and 10 against the top 20. Here's the thing. All the steps you need to take to get to that final step, Yannick Sinner is there. He beats everyone he's supposed to beat. Yannick Sinner, 43-6 and six this year against opponents ranked outside the top 20. Two of those losses were to Holger Runa and Nick Kyrgios. So I would, I would discount those and say he was 43-4 and four against opponents ranked outside the top 20. 
He beats everyone he's supposed to beat, and he looks ruthless doing so. He would be a top 10 club guy. It would be him and Novak Djokovic, the only top 10 guys in the world if you just took Yannick Sinner versus opponents ranked outside the top 20. Now, how does the second serve translate against elite competition? What happens when an opponent is skilled enough to push Yannick Sinner on his back foot? Sinner's gotten better at those things, and I think he's flashed enough improvement that he will continue to get better at those things, that the foundation is now good enough that I just think he will eventually make that last step. But I think the case against Sinner to come full circle here, Gil, is that he hasn't made that last step. The case for him is that last step is the only thing left to go. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's that's accurate. I love his return of serve, love by the way. It. I think love it's it. incredible. Top 15 in, in the world. Like, it's that good. Yeah, I, I completely by agree. By break percentage. Yeah, and, and I think I think that's going to only get better. I mean, mm-hmm. this the serve is something that he's tinkered with so much. The technique has just changed adjustment after adjustment after adjustment. And that that needs to stabilize. I, I thought that was the concern at the U.S. Open. That kind of held him back. And I think the fine margins of that Alcaraz quarterfinal, the match of the year, the fine margins rested on that center second serve to me. Um, he's got to flip some head-to-heads at the top of the game. He's got to flip some head-to-heads, and then he's right there. Yeah, I always feel bad to make requests of Jack Sa- Jeff Sackman because everything he does, he does for free. So you're just kind of like... You know, I, I the one thing that frustrates me on the women's side is you can't see the head-to-heads listed as clearly as you can on the men's. But to your point, Sinner uh, two and three against Alcaraz, but got a couple of big wins against him this year. Umag final Wimbledon, one and four against Tsitsipas, two and two against Rublev, one and three against Zverev. Like those are the guys he's just gonna have to beat, obviously, if he wants to be the guy of his generation or be the guy at a singular slam event because you're probably going to have to go through two of the five names that I listed there. He does have wins over most of them. And I, again, I am betting that Yannick Sinner is going to be the best version of himself. Everything we've learned about him from an intangible aspect off the court is that he will ensure he is that best version. Now he's had a bunch of injury issues and that is something to worry about, Yeah, but I think he has to be a tier one talent. Like again, to do what he's done by this age, win two-thirds of your matches through your age 21 season, that's remarkable. Totally agree. Upstairs, he's going to maximize. It's yes. just genetically, physically, did he get dealt a bad hand? Is he going to get stuck where he's at right now? Because right now, he's not ready to dominate. Like Physically, he's not ready to be an elite player. You, you look at the injuries fleshed out, a lot of wear and tear, soft tissue Kind of, kinds of injuries that, you know, a lot of people like to say, well, Sinner's unlucky. Sinner's not unlucky. Like, Sinner keeps getting hurt for a reason here, um, un- unfortunately. I, I don't like to say that, but, you know, I just think he needs to get stronger, um, and that's going to be the probably the main thing, although, you know, we can talk about his second serve, but main thing is going to be physical. By the way, I heard you say something that I liked. Uh, I, I didn't quite realize that's that rare. Sinner— Go on. <laughs> Very rare. Uh, I didn't realize that Sinner made the second week of all four slams. Did Yannick just do a, do an Iga 2021? I don't. Here's the problem when you say that, Gil, 
is I have a whole <laughs> pod planned for next week on who could be the jump through players that I was going to say who had the EGA 2021 seasons. I literally have it listed out and centers my tier one guy of like, look, this is the EGA 2021 season. Like, <laughs> yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Now I don't have to do the pod, so I'm going to have to reschedule. Um, a thousand, a thousand percent. Now here's the difference. Iga had already won a Grand Slam going into 2021. Sinner yeah. doesn't have that. And as good as – but Sinner has also looked very good on every surface. I mean, he's played fewer than 20 career grass court matches, and he already has a Wimbledon quarterfinal under his belt. So I just do feel like his game translates everywhere. I feel like eventually he'll put on 5 to 10 pounds as well. I mean, again, we agree Sinner's on this list. I think a bunch of people would agree with us as well. By the way, I had forgotten a name, so I have five left. I know I don't have too much time left with you, so we can go a little bit quicker through some of these names. Now, I also want to throw some honorable mentions at you just to make you think if they're close or not. Is Holger Runa a tier one talent now in your mind? Did you see enough from him, particularly through Paris, through those entire indoor hardcourt stretch post-US Open, obviously the French Open quarterfinal run as well? Is Runa now on your list? Being 19 and barely having any discernible weaknesses at this point, you have to give him the respect to put him on this list. Now, I am... I hate that I have to do this largely based off of indoor hardcourt results at the end of the season. And I know he won a title on clay this year. I know he had a great run in Paris and he beat Stefano Tsitsipas. But uh, as much as his results, in my opinion, don't suggest that he definitely belongs to be in this group. I think the age, the eye test, you got to put him in there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the totality of things that he can do and you look for him down the home stretch of the season where he was would have been a top 15 club sort of guy where the break percentage got above the 24% threshold where he was holding around 83 84% of the time and you know again this is a 19 year old kid who's not 6 foot 5 6 foot 6 he's 6 foot 6 1 and yet the totality of things he can do, his ability to start taking the forehand on the short hop, hit that ball early, follow it in, use his speed to close things off at the net. I have very little questions about his tennis and just his acumen, the totality of things he can do on the court. Now, even going into 2022, when we spoke with him last offseason, it was very clear at the challenger level, he could do all the B, C, D game planning, but plan A, winning things easily with his serve, his forehand, that was the struggle for him when he was very young. He's still extraordinarily young, and it wasn't an issue for him down the home stretch of the season. It's just like, if you can see that leap that quickly... Now, he may end the 2023 season outside of the top 15, and he may fall back in the rankings, but if he's able to sustain himself and just hold status quo through next year, you know, if he if he exceeds expectations, then we have two generational talents on our hands in him and Alcaraz, and boy, would we be spoiled if that's the case. But even if he just status quos and has another inconsistent but two exceptional flashes of excellence like we got this year in Paris and Roland Garros, even if it's just that, he still has to be on this list, Gilgrove. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, totally. Like he, he'd still be 
in an incredible spot. Right now, he's 19 years old and he's 11 in the world. Do you know what's also pretty good? 20 years old and 11 in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, some scholars have argued. I, I would very much agree with your assessment there. All right. With that said, again, I think we get more and more precarious as we travel down this list. I still have four names. Uh, excuse me, three names I would like to shout out. I moved someone to the honorable mentions there just quickly. How many more names do you have your un- left on your list? Any? Uh, three. Okay, interesting. Actually, I'm sorry. I think I have four. I have okay. four. Ooh, okay. Give me the next name on your list. I'm going to go Daniil Medvedev. Okay, on my I, list as well. Make the case. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been... I have a nuanced perspective on Medvedev, I think, which is that he's not going to get much better, and how he is now is fine. Now, uh, yes, we saw some tennis in 2022 that isn't going to cut it it's been a while since he's beaten a top 10 player you know concerning times have have fallen on medvedev there's no doubt about that but he's already shown us uh the level that we need to see and uh i think he's just going to get back to that level and be a major factor at the australian open at the us open and by the way i think at wimbledon as well which in in a lot of ways in theory should really suit him he needs to kind of unlock a plan B on the return of serve the way he serves and returns though in terms of free points on the first serve returns in play on return absolutely unicorn like stuff and it's still going to make Medvedev a problem yeah very well said yes all of the statistics whether it be just August onwards or whether it be the totality of the year dipped off for Medvedev this season he was injured during it we discussed this on our ATP peaks pod with David Kane first of all even if this this is the regression this is who he is through the rest the remainder of his prime there were two players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage this season Novak Djokovic who was top 10 in both and Daniil Medvedev who was top 15 in both he's still six foot six six seven on the right day can ride that first serve to so many different free points and then I mean again he can play the defense that he can play continues to work on developing the first strike offense it's never going to be elite but even if it gets three percent better then all the service stats return to normal you know should he find that ability to adjust and hit the return of serve a little bit closer to the baseline boy does he become a monster to have to face so yeah I just there are too many hardcore slams between now and the end of uh and the start of January 1st 2030 as well as the fact that what if he's allowed to play Wimbledon again who is better positioned of these young players than Daniil Medvedev to perhaps capitalize on his skill set at that event in a post Djokovic world right if Medvedev if Russians are allowed to compete at Wimbledon starting this year. Does Medvedev win a Wimbledon in his career? I mean, first of all, it's it's not going to be forever that they're not able to play Wimbledon. In fact, I, I think they will be allowed next year, personally. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I, I'd put Felix ahead of him, but Felix and then Medvedev. Okay, I like it. Felix is on your list then as well? Felix is on my list. Okay, we've done a lot of Felix talk over the past month, so yep. quickly— it's the serve, it's the forehand. First serve is a top 10 number. For, first forehand could be elite. And for me, Gil, it's the fact that he has those non-negotiables. When he plays on his terms, I swear it should be more effective on clay than it is. And it was this year at the French Open as he pushed Rafa two five sets. I think the guy's a monster three out of five sets. I think there's just going to be a two-week stretch. I'll say U.S. Open 2027 where his serve, his forehand are firing and he captures it. Exactly. Like the firepower 
is is going to be you know inferior to almost nobody and the rest of his game can develop around that because he is a mobile athlete so you know he he needs to develop as a baseliner that's been the continuous kind of struggle for him uh but a lot of players can't do that if you're Matteo Berrettini I'm sorry you, you unfortunately you can't do it you're not fast enough you're too big you're too slow uh, but Felix doesn't have those issues. So he can come out here with a Berrettini-like serve forehand, but also he has the base to continue to get better uh, in winning return games. And you do that by being able to defend and win baseline rallies. The hold percentage has improved the past six seasons. The break percentage is steadily floating towards that 22.57% range, which would just be average amongst top 50 players. And if he can be an average returner to go along with elite serving, now you're talking about a Berrettini 1.25, a Berrettini 1.5, and we know how good that player can be. The last guy on my list is Virev. I've spent too much time identifying why I believe in Alex Virev over the years, at least his tennis game. And so I just think six foot six, fluid athlete, seems relatively healthier. I'm betting on him finding health. I'm betting on him regaining his form. I'm betting on that skill set ultimately winning out. Is he on your list? He's not. You don't think he's going to end the decade with a slam? Because if he doesn't get one this decade, he's not getting one. I know. I, yeah, no, I. I would wow. probably bet no right now on even odds. We've we've talked about it, but the the injury he just suffered, it it could be, or I should say injuries, it could be uh, never the same again. Uh, I think that's completely in play. I, I hope not because that would be a, a difficult way to end it. But let's say let's say the the foot and the ankle is not a problem. There are mental roadblocks there that continue to be concerning. I don't think he ever got over it. I don't think the second serve ever became a non-issue. A lot of people like to say that he solved it, that he figured it out. And then every time that was said, there would be, you know, it, it would go backwards. There would be almost relapses. Even in, in 2022, where he did look really good at Roland Garros before the injury. Really good. Uh, go back the major before. Look at that Australian Open loss. I think it was against Chapeau. Like that was a, a D, maybe an F performance. And those things just happened too frequently in best of five in majors when the chips were down, uh, where the, you know, when his forehand is is at its best and his second serve is staying out of the way, he's elite. I mean, really, 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 really elite. And that just wasn't happening consistently enough, reliably enough for me to be confident that he was going to put it together and hoist a major title. Yeah, uh, very well said. Again, when you look overall, I mean, he's made a bunch of semifinals now. It used to be a concern. Can Alex Virov get to the second week of slams? That's no longer a concern. When he's healthy, we usually see him at the very least in round number four. I understand why many people have no will no longer give him the benefit of the doubt. My thinking is just, again, the combination of physicality. If he can regain that back, the tennis is too good. Combine that physicality to not just eventually survive the course of a seven-day slog. Like, I do think physically he's one of the guys who, at his healthiest, can play seven consecutive best-of-five matches and look good for seven—or at least look fit for seven matches consecutively. 
There are still a lot of guys I can't say that about, so that's why he's on my list. I know you have to go. It's I've all got... it's all good. Let's. I I have fifteen more minutes. Let's. Okay. Uh, Beautiful. So then, with that in mind, who's last on your list, or any other Zverev thoughts? No, no more. No more Zverev yeah, that's thoughts. That's enough on uh, him. I agree. <laughs> Do we both have Tsitsipas? No. So I have Tsitsipas in the just missed category. I have all I have left is honorable mentions for what it's worth. I have six guys I've labeled as just missed. I have six guys I've labeled as too soon. Which category would you like to hear about first? All right, I have one who who I would bet on to win one, and it's gonna be. Uh, is it gonna be Casper Ruud? It's gonna be the the clip you cut. I was gonna say yes, actually for for two two more. Okay, so Casper. Casper, yes. I I think, again, you have to look at the trajectory. You have to respect where he's at right now, how much room there is to grow. I absolutely love how much better his backhand got and how quickly it got so much better. And, and he's got everything. The weapon of the forehand serves incredibly well for his height and has really, really good speed, court coverage, needs to work on the the technique on the return of serve. I think that's the the major thing in the backhand defense, but I just think he's gonna com- continue to develop in a really positive way. Um, but what what is also clear is that if he doesn't get better, you could say, oh, Rude's three in the world, he's already close. No, he's not close. He really does need to get better, in my opinion, in order to win one. But uh, I think he will. Yeah, I think the backhand is low-hanging fruit for him to get continue to get better. He's a top ten. He's the only guy who's top ten in hold percentage who's not six foot four or taller outside of Djokovic. You know who doesn't good count. stat. Um, I just wonder how much more effective will that first serve, that first forehand get? How much more effective can they get? Like they're again, if they've maximized out, this is still very, very good. I guess it's just it's such a refined game. Like I could see him being this player for the next ten years, and this player is a perennial top ten sort of guy. I think he epitomizes the best of what tier two looks like. I just think there are guys who have whether it be weapons from the ground, things they do physically, whatever it may be, just a little bit above Kasparud, and that's why he's the top of tier two, but just out of tier number one for me. All right, here's the the one you're gonna clip. You're gonna post it on social media. It's gonna go, uh, gonna go viral. Uh, I'm, I bet yes on Nick Kyrgios. Oh, so he was in my just missed category. You're right. This is the clip. Make the case. <laughs> he just had a season. Look, the questions about Nick Kyrgios were very clear. Does he spend enough time working on his fitness? to be able to withstand the rigors of the tour, to stay healthy. And he just did it for a full year. He was in shape. He was moving well. He did not have any endurance issues. We saw him at Wimbledon go all the way to the final and maintain physical fitness. And I know from people close to Nick, people who are in the know that this was not some kind of coincidence. Nick hit the gym. Nick decided in the US to actually pay his physical trainer in Australia or his, uh, I'll say his physio that is generally in Australia, pay him extra to stay in the US with him over the North American hardcore swing. He was doing these things, making these sacrifices, both you know financially and from an effort standpoint to get in shape. And then you know mentally, is he going to 
want it bad enough? Is he going to compete? And yes, every time he took the court, he competed. And I don't care how many times he yelled at the umpire or, or yelled at his box or said that a fan was drunk. At the end of the day, he was trying. And if you put those two things together with Nick Kyrgios, effort and fitness, you are going to have a guy who is going to win a major. He is 27 years old. And I believe he's going to put the pieces together and just repeat what he did last year, and it's going to be good enough. You're getting choked up there at the end. I love to hear the passion. I mentioned earlier Djokovic is the unequivocal favorite at Wimbledon for the next two years. You know who the guy is that's most likely to beat him? It's Nick freaking Kyrgios. There is absolutely zero reason what he did at Wimbledon this year can't be replicated in the future. That serve his his fluidity moving forward, his comfort level sneaking that backhand return a little bit early, a little bit on the rise, down the line by you, get that ability to keep you on your back foot, keep you guessing on the grass. That's the surface that's most effective. We saw him deploy that game with such effect throughout the course of the fortnight this year. And again, Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa, even Felix, to some extent, these young guys just don't have a ton of grass court matches under their belt yet. Now, Felix is getting pretty close, but like this is the window for Nick Kyrgios, given there is no unequivocal number two guy on the grass courts right now. Yeah, Berrettini's really good, but again, we were talking about going into this year's Wimbledon, Marin Cilic as a top five contender. Marin Cilic should not be in the top five of any list at any point unless it's best eyebrows behind me and you, Gil. Like, that's the list Cilic belongs on. Nick Kyrgios should be on that top five Wimbledon list for the remainder of his career, at least through the end of his, you know, age 32, 33 season. And even then, as long as his shoulder's working, he's going to be frisky. The reason he was just missed is there's a window. Like, he belongs in this conversation. You have to bet on that sustained focus, that sustained fitness, and that sustained motivation from Nick. And look, there are a lot of other young, talented players who are there to fill the vacuum if he's not all of those things. But if he is all those things, I agree with you, Gil. Great moment for the clip, and I do think that the window is open. Any final thoughts on Nick? Nope. Said it all. All right. Well, with that in mind, let me get into my honorable mention, the too soon list, and we can rapid fire through these. You tell me if you like them, you think they're feasible, or if they need to be cut right away. If I told you one year from now, Denis Shapovalov has played his way onto the tier one list, would you laugh me out of the room, or would you say it's possible? It's doable. It's possible. I agree. He belongs. Just too much firepower, athleticism. I'm just intrigued enough, but... He's also on my most intriguing players of 2023 list. It's like now or never. Like, this is the last hurrah with Dennis. If it's another season yeah. like that, I'm out. Ben Shelton, too soon, but has to be in this conversation. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Sebi, I, I, yep, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see what this year brings with him. Um, I hope that... I, I really misfired last year on Brooksby. I, I did not see this kind of year coming... And uh, I'm I'm feeling similarly, being very excited to see what Ben Shelton does this year, and and it's a far more conventional skill set, yes. which should bode That's well yes. for a kind of yeah. So that, that we, I'd it's be the surprised. Weapon. It's yeah, the exactly. weapons. The serve's going to win regardless of level because you can't fake 125 out wide from a lefty. Corda, yep. um, too soon, but I don't want to cut right him off of this list. I don't want to cut him off, but I'm not. 
I think there are other guys who who I would probably put, you know, give a mention before Corda. That's spoken like someone in a relationship um, because Corda's just so <laughs> handsome. Um, come on. The perfect jawline. Um, you're just wrong. Uh, Draper? Like, I'm sorry, but, like, I don't think – I think maybe even you should mention Fritz before Corda. Uh, anyway. Oh, my – okay. Well – He's just a lot closer right now. I mean, look, uh, it's a no. Like, but I don't think Taylor Fritz wins ceiling? one. But... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I still don't think we've I think seen so. Corda's ceiling. I don't think we've seen Corda's ceiling. And that's why he has it too soon. But, like, if I tell you, what's Seppi Corda right now? Like, 29-ish in the ATP ranking, something like that? Let me see. He's Seppi 33. Corda. If I over-under, he finishes higher or lower than that next year. Oh, he should finish higher. I mean, he's 22 years old. Which is why you say, like, I think he has to be on, the like, the list unequivocally versus, like, Fritz, who's currently sitting at nine, higher or lower. Where does he finish next year? Uh, I haven't thought about this. Uh, That's good because I prepped I well. think I, I think around the same, honestly. Interesting. Uh, it's a cop-out answer, but I think he you can kind of bet- just hold oldest ground a late november dinner lock it in loser pays for the dinner in la that quarter i bet quarter finishes the year higher than fritz oh that's a good one okay i'll take fritz yeah okay i'm down for that one lock it in listeners don't let us forget please some listener out there uh pedro i don't remember your last names but you always like the tweets i'm i'm immensely grateful for your continued support do not let us forget that we have a lunch bet uh dinner (laughs) bet excuse me i'll take quarter he's taking fritz all right, here, let me push back, though, a little bit from this angle. Lorenzo Musetti is two years younger and 10 spots higher than Corda. I have Musetti on my too soon list. I haven't gotten to him yet. Don't worry, I had more names for you. Oh, you thought I was done, <laughs> Gil? Come on. Draper, right, too coming. soon. Musetti was next up. Too soon to say him, but I'm not ready to write it off yet. Did you write yeah. off Draper, by the way? No, I, I wouldn't write off Draper. Yeah. All right, this is... An Alex Homerism. Shout out to Top Notch Management for having me at the Cleveland Challenger every year. Dom Stricker. I love Dom Stricker's ability to hit a tennis ball. I know that. <laughs> How mean do I? I almost said something really mean. Uh, whatever. I love Dom Stricker's game. His body best epitomizes the Pillsbury Doughboy. Like, that's what it is right now. It's a little Pillsbury But, like, okay. Wait till he's 24 and an athlete, like, and turns the underlying skills he has into just a stud. Like, I'm just such a believer in his ability to play tennis. Yeah, like, I I hope we understand that the guy who's going to surprise you midway through their career is your Dom Strickers of the world. 100%. It's not your Alex Demonors of the world Mm -hmm. who are going to, you know, they have clearly workhorses they do everything they can to completely maximize in every area and they're really really good but probably not top 10. Uh, that's not the kind of guy who's going to surprise you midway through their career it's going to be your dom strickers so uh not someone who i think a lot of people actually are talking about in these kinds of conversations but i uh i feel you 
Yeah, too soon. Let's be clear. Too soon. But needed a shout and then not eliminated from the GOAT conversation, Jerry Shank. <laughs> Just he's got to be thrown out here. And then look, we mentioned Tsitsipas, Berrettini at, at Wimbledon. If you want to shout there, would I be shocked if Berrettini won a Wimbledon? No, I would be surprised, but not shocked. Hubi, for all the same reasons for Kyrgios, but like not. You know what I mean. Um, Opelka. Because, like, what if he puts it together? 2026 Wimbledon. Come on, folks. Um, Fritz was on the just missed for me as well. I just, I'm not quite the believer there. But any other names? Any other final thoughts before we wrap today's show? Hmm. We threw a lot out there. Are you yeah. giving up on Grigor? Is it time to write that? No, yes. I'm just kidding. Yes. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> a Rayonich comeback? Come on now. <laughs> Dominic Team might be the one name people would be upset we didn't say anything about. I just. It's too crowded up top. A lot of work to do. A lot yeah. of work to do. That That's all I'll say about team. Like, it's not, yeah. I don't have a hardline stance. Yes, no, but just a lot of work to do. Similar to Zverev. Like, I feel the same way. He's got a lot of work to do. Marc-Andre um, Hussler? No. <laughs> I'll t- Pedro Martinez-Portero. Do you know, I once called Pedro Martinez-Portero a dark horse at the French Open, not to win the freaking thing, but to, like, make a round of 16 run and upset a seed. And lo and behold, he literally did that exact thing. And now anytime he, like, does anything, I get a text in one of my group chats from people being like, oh, is it the dark horse Pedro Martinez? I'm like, that's not what I meant. Um, I like him, too. He, he's, yeah. I like him. He's Challenger just very— Challenger superstar Quinton Halis. He's very Spanish, Pedro Martinez. Yeah. Like, he's Amen. never hit a non-kick serve in his life. <laughs> it's true. He also looks like someone I played club tennis with, but, like, the athletic version. And I'm like, I text that person. I go, dude, if you were a pro tennis player, you'd look like this. <laughs> and um, for what it's worth, yeah, I think that's everyone we've gotten to. So again, Chorich. No. Oh, ooh. He's on here too soon or just missed? Not too soon, but just missed. It's not my just miss. It's just another interesting guy coming in okay. next year, trying to figure out how good he is. I mean, does he get back to his career high? 13 in the world. Like, this is a guy in 2018 who was, like, 21 years old or something, Yeah, I want to say. Yeah. And uh, was 13 in the world. Like, it's the kind of guy who in 2018 would have been in this podcast episode. Yeah, no, I mean, I got two more names for you, my friend, that I forgot out there. Ebing Wu, there was a moment where I thought he was the best player in the world this year, so I'm going to put him in the too soon category at 23 years old, given how injured he's been. And then, people don't talk enough about what Tim Van Reithoven did on the grass courts this year, Gil. What if it, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to throw one last name at you. But with that said, a lot of names thrown out there. There's a lot of tier one talent. And look, I wanted to go decade by decade and count how many players actually won slams throughout the course of each decade. But you can't look at the 2010s because that's cheating. And like 2000s get so clouded by the end of it. Now, the 1990s, you've got Sampras in there as well, who won so many different slams during that decade. Typically, there's at least one guy who dominates. Alcaraz. Alcaraz isn't going to be much worse than Sampras yeah, or better. I mean, come on. He said it, not me, folks. He said it. Although, then again, I say Alcaraz is not eliminated from the GOAT conversation. So, yeah, I would agree with you. Look, on the women's side, it's usually somewhere between 11 and 16 names. And that feels about right for this ATP generation, right? Like Medvedev's already snuck in one. Team's got one. Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, five names so far. If I tell you six to 
nine more guys are going to win a slam, their first sl- or at least a slam here this decade? Is that that far off? Yeah, probably. You think because that's too high? The, yeah. The one wow. thing about this conversation. I have six guys listed right here. Sinner, Runa, Medvedev. Oh, I guess Medvedev already did. So Sinner, Runa, Felix is three. You have Rude at four. Kyrgios would be a fifth. Yeah. So I, I I understand that, but we're probably both overestimating. Interesting. I think the big three is clouding your judgment. I think this is going to get a lot more like things look on the WTA tour, and I think that 11 to 16 number sounds about right, and I would actually lean towards the higher side. Okay, but let's also acknowledge, always important to remember in these kinds of conversations, that there are going to be some guys who we have never heard of because they yeah. are – they are completely exactly. Um, it's like at the holiday dinner, you leave one for the seat of Elijah, the ghost of the unknown, baby. That's the that's the sixth man in your equation. Yes, um, I I do think I do think there could be some hogging okay. with Alcaraz, um, in particular, and Runa. It, it's almost like he could fit into two categories, the yes and the too soon to tell. Yeah, I'll tell you this. If, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just don't know, like, is Runa an Alcaraz level prospect? Mm. You know, I think I don't think so. But there is some time for him to make that case, which would be translating uh, the results that we saw after the U.S. Open this year and just continuing that into next year. And suddenly we are looking at another teenage to 20 year old phenom in the elite ranks of the game. And if that's the case, again, if it's less than the six to nine more players who win slams, then it does mean we have two generational talents on our hands. But with all that said, Gil Gross, always a pleasure to be joined by you. What do you have coming up that our listeners can look forward to? Coming up is uh, a mailbag. Coming where- up. Is yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Next <laughs> on the show, uh, a mailbag where tennis questions are not allowed. Okay. Um, are you going to rank that, the croissants for me? You didn't ask that, so you well, could have. What do you, I, I assumed it was implied in my tagging you. People don't talk enough about the croissant text. This is me saying talk about the croissant, Gil. All right. Well, maybe I'll mention it. <laughs> That's all I'll tease at Gil underscore Gross on Twitter. Gil Gross on YouTube. Did you, uh, available on all podcast platforms as well. Monday Match you, Analysis is the podcast, though. I appreciate it. Do you agree that the croissant is underrated? Not really. It's rated very high. Is I, it really? Think, yeah, everybody loves those. See, I didn't know that it was. I mean, <laughs> for me, when I eat a croissant. That's because like, you're in Indiana. You, yeah, I'm like, does anyone. Clouded. <laughs> I'm like, does anyone talk about this? Because this is crazy. I'm like, they're just throwing out croissants left and right. Um, right. I would also argue the Burger King croissant, which with bacon, egg, and cheese in the fast food smorgasbord of breakfast sandwiches is the most underrated in like back in the tournament days. If I really needed food before a match, that would be what I go to. That's disgusting. And that's why you lost. I What was our Burger score? King, when we played? Yeah. Did we play a set or a, we played to four, right? Four, two? Yeah, I'm just, I just, that was fueled by Burger King, my friend, in case you didn't know. Oh. No, well, I'm just kidding. Sorry. It was, it was a reflex. Go on, go on, go on. I haven't had Burger King since I was uh, merely a child. Guess what? Neither have I. I'm just saying, in my power, 
you look at this jawline. You think there's a lot of fast food breakfast? That's you know, I t- one of the best. So I'll turn this because I've been too negative. I've been too anti-Gill in today's show. We'll end with a positive before I let you go. I texted Gill, hey, man, I really need a breakfast burrito in California before I go. <laughs> and Gill goes, Alex, I've got you covered. And let me just say, it was the best breakfast burrito I've ever had. And so shout out to you, as always, Gil. Yeah, it's a lock. I mean, <laughs> that's that's what I expect of myself. <laughs> that if you ask me where to get a breakfast burrito in the capital of breakfast burritos, that I'm going to guide you correctly. So. Yeah. Well done, and that's why you guys should submit questions non-tennis related to the Mailbag Monday match analysis. Again, appreciate Gil taking the time. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, as well, for the of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all the content possible. With that said, for the fantastic Gil Gross, super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Thanks.